Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the host of the show as well as the director of the nonprofit creatingafamily.org. Today we're going to be talking about therapeutic parenting strategies and solutions. We'll be talking today with Sarah Nash. She is the CEO of the Center of Excellence in Child Trauma and the founder of the National Association of Therapeutic Parents. She is the author of two books, one, The A to Z of Therapeutic Parenting, and a new book, The A to Z of Survival Strategies for Therapeutic Parents. She is also the adoptive mom to a sibling group of five who are now adults, and she has fostered over 40 kids. Welcome, Sarah, to Creating a Family. We're so happy to have you with us today. Thank you, Dawn. Hi. Why are, I'm going to jump right in there, why are some kids harder to parent? And why especially are kids who have experienced trauma, and when we say trauma, I want to include prenatal trauma, often harder to parent? Well, there's a variety of reasons, but mainly it's that the children's experience of the world is different. So their brain has grown and adapted to cope with the world they were born into. So, for example, I use an analogy about I say my children were born on a plane and unfortunately the plane for whatever reason was flown by unskilled pilots and that meant that the plane was swooping and diving and sometimes making a crash landing. Well that meant that the children were never feeling safe and they had to adapt to that. Well just because somebody comes along and says to the child do you know what this isn't going well I'm going to move you into a a different plane different airline And these pilots are great. They can fly the plane. They know what they're doing. The child can't just move planes and go, oh, phew, I can relax now. The point is they have adapted to the environment that they Mm -hmm. were in, and and that is full of danger. So they're still looking for that danger when they come to us, the people Mm -hmm. that hopefully know what we're doing. Yeah, exactly. That's a good analogy as someone who is uh, dislikes turbulence a lot and gets tense and anxious anytime uh, turbulence happens. So I so I t- that's a good a good analogy. You say in the in your books that understanding the cause of the behavior is the root of parenting these harder to parent kids. The the behaviors we are seeing, why why do we need to focus first on the cause? Well, the thing is, it's a bit like, you know, if you keep trying to resolve something in the wrong way, you're just going round and round in circles. So we talk about um, a needle being stuck on a record, like the old fashioned record players. So, for example, say you've got a child who's stealing, for example, and we don't try and understand why they're stealing. We're just looking at the fact that the child is stealing. Mm -hmm. And we meet that behavior with perhaps a a standard parenting strategy, which is, well, I'm going to take your pocket money away. Well, because we haven't understood what's behind the behavior, the strategy we're putting in there isn't going to resolve the behavior. It's not going to change it. So as therapeutic parents, we can get very frustrated because we keep repeating the same thing, thinking something magic is going to happen. But if we don't understand why our children are behaving the way they do, we keep meeting it with the wrong response. It's our response that needs to change in order to change the children's behaviors. All right. So you start by saying we have to establish the basics to make their lives predictable. 
so they can feel safe and grow and, and heal ultimately. And you lay out five elements for establishing this base. And I want to go through them because as with all bases, they really are foundational. I guess that's stating the obvious, right? The uh, Let's start with the first of your uh, five elements, and that is routines. One of the things, why are routines, first, first of all, why are they so important for these children? Well, let's think about the child I was talking about who was born on a plane. You know, there's no, there's no predictability there. The child doesn't know what's happening next, doesn't know when the plane's going to crash, doesn't know when there's going to be a bad landing, doesn't know when they're going to be fed. So routines, it's often for our children the first time that they're able to predict what will happen next. So with my children, I certainly found very early on that by having a very strong routine where the children knew that they were going to get fed at certain times, that helped them to have lowered cortisol levels and to feel calmer and be more regulated. So it made our lives easier. I'm not saying that it was a fun thing to do. It can be quite boring having to have the same routine and you know pretty well cast iron. But it is important for our children to be able to predict the future, perhaps for the first time in their lives. Predictability leads to a feeling of control, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, for our children, that's something that they are seeking a lot of the time. So I often liken that to, you know, the child banging on the cockpit door, trying to get in the cockpit to fly the plane with the pilot because they feel like there's only me that knows how to do this. Mm -hmm. As parents, we see that as the child trying to be controlling, but actually it's a fear-based behavior. The child is scared about what's happening mm-hmm. and wants to have some control over that. That's going back to trying to understanding the root cause, right, yeah. is understanding that it is fear-based. You know, one of the things we hear frequently from parents is that they realize the, the parent who is parenting, the harder to parent kid, realizes that the child needs routines. And like you point out, sometimes it feels rigid, but it also, to ourselves, but it also looks rigid to others. And, and so often we get pressured into, oh, come on, relax a little, for goodness sakes. You know, it's, that's really hard. Did you find that as well? Yeah, absolutely. There's always an expert around right the corner. <laughs> Armchair uh, parent. Always, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I call them perfect parents. Um, yeah. <laughs> people, that, people that, you know, have not raised a child from trauma, but know all about reward charts. So, so I have a, a good little story about this. So I had a very good friend and she ran a nursery. So she knew all about, you know, neurotypical children. And she came to my house one day and she said exactly what you just said. Oh, you're quite strict, aren't you? You know, lighten up a little bit. And I, so I said to her, cause I was fed up with it. I said, do you know what? You're quite right. Tell you what, I'm going to nip out for a couple of hours. Uh, you, you finish giving the children their tea and then they just need to have their bath and go to bed and, and I'll come back. I, I'm absolutely exhausted. And she was a bit, taken aback so I went went out switched my phone (laughs) off was out for two hours when I came back and this is absolutely true she was sitting in the middle of the room crying while the children (laughs) swung on the curtains and were jumping on the table around her and she looked at me and she said I'm so sorry and I said (laughs) Yeah, that's why we have a strong routine. <laughs> okay, now you're living everybody's dream. I'm going to tell you, I can't tell you how many times I would have liked to have done that. And that was exactly, so you're living, you are living my dream. So I can hope and I can imagine that that would happen. And I want everybody else to be able to as well. Yeah, and you just have to toughen up to it. You yeah. have to accept that people, and including people in your own family, 
grandparents and others who who are going to think you're being overly controlling mm. and too strict and uh, and too too rigid just to you know allow a little fun in your life type of thing and and it and and I do think that as our children become more regulated we can lighten up some but then we have to even when we lighten up we know that there's only so far that we can go before we've let them they start feeling uh out of control they start they don't have that security that's right and in fact Dawn the problem you're talking about is so common it's we're asked about it so much that in the latest but the survival strategies I've actually done a table of useful phrases and it's in there for when people patronise you and say, oh, I'm just lighting up, I've got all the things you can say, uh, you know, and all the things like what not to say. You can think it, but don't don't say it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, there's probably a lot of those. Okay, give us one or two that people, that a, a parent could say when they're told some version of you're too strict or lighten up or have a little fun. So I would say something like, Oh, I see what's happened here. And I would do kind of a bit patchwork. Oh, I see what's happened here. You're talking about neurotypical children. Um, you, I'm, I'm, I'm parenting neurodiverse children. And actually, you have to parent them differently. Would you like me to give you a resource on that? I've got a couple. Um, and then I do. I, I follow it up and I give them one of my little books or resource from NATP or, you know, and it's literally just a little fact sheet that says, when you're speaking to a parent of a neurodiverse child, do not say this. And this is why. <laughs> Do not say what you just said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, excellent. Your second of the establishing the basics to make the child's life predictable. Your second base is establish yourself as a safe base with empathetic and nurturance. Um, so talk to us a bit about that. Well, you know, because of making the child, making sure the child can see their life is predictable, we have to become part of that predictability. So Often our children would have been met with very unsafe responses. And because of that, they will naturally, you know, try and push our buttons and they will sometimes be expecting a perhaps an abusive response for us from us that isn't going to happen. And we can only really demonstrate to them through time of responding appropriately that actually we're not going to hurt them. We're not going to overreact and that we are safe. So once we can show the child that we are safe, that helps the child's cortisol to lower and they can start to, well, to stop testing us. Now, that takes a long time. It's not quick, but it is about making those plane landings many, many times. You bring the plane down safely. And over time, the child goes, oh, I think this person has got it. I think they can keep me safe. But we're not going to do that by talking to them or telling them we're safe. We have to demonstrate it. So that will be things like, you know, if a child is lying to me or um, doing something which is designed. So say, for example, I've told them to definitely not put an item of clothing on and then they put that clothing on and they dance into the room wearing it. That will happen because the child is expecting me to react in perhaps a way that happened in the past. They're testing to see how safe they are. And what I need to do is say, oh, that's, that's an interesting choice you've made. Oh, well, you know, I'll wait till you've changed and then, and then we can carry on with our day. But what I'm not going to do is go, why did you do that? I can't believe it. That's <laughs> the kind of response the child's expecting. And we have to do it a lot of times. And it's tough. It's difficult. We, we do become actors, really good at acting. 
Yeah, very. That's a good. In keeping with the um, the transportation analogies, you use one that I that really clicked with me. That mm-hmm. the parent is the engine of the train, and they're pulling behind the little cars, and the little cars are our kids. And I had four, you had five, so here I mm-hmm. am, the engine, and and there were four little cars behind me, five behind you, and one seemed to always be jumping off the track, but I still needed to be the engine. I still needed to be that safe base, and and try to get the child back on the track. I, somehow that just really stuck with me. Yes, uh, absolutely, because. It's only by moving forward that you keep the children on the track. So sometimes it can be a bit tempting to kind of stop and go, hang on a minute. So the child has stopped me. Maybe they haven't got their shoes or maybe they're not walking out the door. And it can be. And sometimes we get dragged into that and we go and we start following the child and we're going back down the track. But if we just keep moving forwards and say, oh, I can see you're struggling with this. Never mind. Uh, It's time to go to school now. And we keep going. We just keep going forwards with our parenting. The children do follow us. They do Mm -hmm. follow on behind. They don't want to be left behind. So I think part of that as well is about looking at who is there, who's putting coal in the fire, who's who's helping me drive this engine uh, and who isn't because it's tiring doing it on your own. So we need to get the children to secure attachment station. That's such a good point. It is tiring doing it on your own. Absolutely. Another thing you say that that is that really resonates in this establishing yourself as a safe base is to respond to the child, not to the child's demand. Can you give us an example of what you mean by that? Yes, yeah, sure. So I always say, It's about looking at what our children need and what our children need is different to what they want, although they're very good at telling us what they want. So, for example, my child might have a phone as a teenager and they might break that phone. Now, that that might be broken on purpose through sabotage, whatever. The child is likely to say to me, I want a new phone. I want a new phone. I have to have a new phone. I'm going to hear it 100 times a day. If I don't get a new phone, I'm going to die. Well, the thing is, that is what the child wants. That isn't what they need. What they need is to learn that if they break something, that's a shame. It's it's broken. It, it's not there anymore. We're building synapses in their brain by helping them to understand that the broken phone is no longer available to them. And we would help them to perhaps get a phone another way, but it's going to take a while. It's not going to be immediately replaced. So it is about, and I might even say that to the child, you know, I know you think You really, really want another phone, but it's my job to look at what you really, really need. And I think a little break from your phone would be very helpful for you. Okay. Hey, guys, if you are not a subscriber yet to our monthly newsletter, please go over to bit.ly slash C-A-F guide and subscribe now. That's bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash C-A-F obviously for creating a family, C-A-F guide, all one word. You will get a free download guide for parenting a child exposed to trauma when you do. And you'll also get great content delivered right to your inbox monthly as well. All right, so the third element for establishing the base after setting, establishing routines and setting yourself up as a safe base, the third is Be honest about their story. Be honest about the contacts, agreements. Be honest about the things happening in their life. Let's talk some about that. Why, first of all, is that so important? 
First of all, the child knows what has happened to them. Even if they don't hold it in their active memory, their body knows. So their body will remember frightening things that have happened. There'll be things that trigger them like smell, like certain environments, certain sounds, that kind of thing. They already know it. So if we try to fob the children off by saying something like, oh, your mum and dad couldn't look after you, that doesn't resonate very well with the child because what they hear there is you, they couldn't look after you. So does that mean they could look after somebody else? Is that because there's a problem with me? Mm -hmm. So I found with my children and the children I work with now, it's very important to say, do you know what? There are some people who are unable to look after children. We don't know why. Sometimes we know why. Sometimes we don't. They're unable to look after children and they couldn't even look after you. So therefore, they couldn't look after any children because you're like the best children ever. You're the best kids ever. And they couldn't manage to, to do that. And then I would answer the children's questions honestly. I would tell them what had happened. And that's not about saying, for example, I would never say to a child, your parents loved you if I have no evidence for that. And my children say now to me that if I had said to them that their birth parents loved them, they would have felt very worried about forming relationships because if that's what love was, they didn't want it because they came from mm -hmm. a very abusive background. So instead, I said, this is what happened in your home. This is how your birth parents work. This is what happened. This is why we think it happened. And it's very sad. And I'm here for you. Mm -hmm. What I noticed about that story is you also were not putting their birth parents down. You weren't mm -hmm. saying derogatory things, even though you likely feel them. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because when you do that, really, you know, we never do know the whole story. We, we never do know. And although my children's birth parents did behave appallingly and were very, very dangerous, something made them that way. So something happened to them to make them that way. And I don't know what that was. So it's not my position to judge, but it is my position to assure the children that it was not their fault. Whatever mm -hmm. happened was not down to them. Mm -hmm. All right. The fourth element of establishing a base after routines, setting yourself up as a safe base and being honest about their story without filling in the gaps that you don't know. The fourth one is establishing clear, strong boundaries. On its face, that is obvious, kind of goes back into the, the idea of routines being, being very clear about what you want. But what do you do when these boundaries are crossed? Well, I think that's going to be kind of what, where I'm at in point five around consequences and, and what we do with that. But we have to be very clear about how we set those boundaries out in the first place in order to make sure the children understand. So, for example, language is very important. I remember saying to the children, can you empty the dishwasher, please? Well, what I know now is that my children heard that as are you able to empty the dishwasher? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they didn't They didn't hear it as, I, as me saying, it's your turn to empty the dishwasher. So I learned to change my language into, it's your turn to empty the dishwasher, time to do it now. Thank you. So part of boundary setting is around really looking at our language and making sure we're giving clear direction to the children, which can't be misinterpreted. And if we have given that clear direction and set out those boundaries, then if those boundaries are transgressed or they're not met in some way, 
then we as the parent have to make sure that we are allowing consequences to occur, natural consequences or logical consequences Mm -hmm. to um, occur. And that is the fifth element. So perfect. Great segue. All right. So using natural life uh, or life or logical consequences, let's talk some about that. What do you, first of all, how does that differ when we hear people say, I'm going to give you a consequence versus using the natural or the logical consequence? It's really interesting, I think, because what I always ask parents to think about is who is that for? What, who is that consequence for? So, for example, if you have a child who has, for example, stolen something, uh, they've taken some money or whatever, and you are saying to them, well, you know, because you took that money, I'm going to take your pocket money or, or even better, I'm not taking you to the cinema. I'm not, I'm not taking you to the movies tonight. Unrelated, completely unrelated. That's a punishment. And that's for our benefit. That's for the parents' benefit. That's to try to make us feel better. Mm-hmm. For the child, that doesn't help them to link what they did with what has happened So one of the things our children really struggle with is linking cause and effect, because Mm -hmm. in their early life, consequences didn't make any sense a lot of the time. So what we have to do is we have to build these synapses in their brain by saying, oh, okay, because unfortunately you took that biscuit, there are no biscuits left, the cookies, there's no there's no cookies left for later. Uh, They've all gone. Uh, We can have an apple instead, but the cookies are all gone. What I'm not going to do is rush out and buy another load of cookies, or I'm certainly not going to say I'm going to take a pound out of your pocket money because that's unrelated. So it's our job to really help the child to link. I did that and therefore this has happened. And the, the best way of doing that is a natural consequence where the child's broken the phone. The phone is broken. The child has thrown the remote control for the TV out the window. The TV doesn't work. That's a natural consequence. But when we want to perhaps do a little bit more or we want to make those links a bit stronger, we might put in something else. So, for example, my daughter, she tried to um, jump out of a moving car, obviously very dangerous. And my husband grabbed her and pulled her back in. he, He nearly said, right, that's it. You're not going to the party tonight. Completely unrelated. And I said, no, 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 that's what's going on here. So I said to her, because you tried to jump out the car, it's very dangerous. We need to keep you safe until I can be sure that you're safe. I'm not going to take you in the car for the next week. I'm going to just check you're safe. So I'm relating her trying to jump out of the car to something to do with the car. So I call that an extended natural consequence. So you've got to do something. It's not something that just occurs on its own, but you keep it as close as possible to the actual action and event. So the child starts to learn. I did that, and therefore this has happened. Yeah, I'm so glad you raised the uh, the issue of recognizing cause and effect. For neurotypical kids, that is a, a develop, natural developmental stage. We don't expect it of a two-year-old, but we do expect by six, seven, eight that the children are un- beginning to understand I do something and or something happens and this is the effect. I do something and this is the effect. But Early life trauma, especially perhaps prenatal exposure, and we know from prenatal exposure, for example, that it actually changes the structure of the brain. You can look at the MRI of a child who has been prenatally exposed to one who has not, depending, of course, on the timing and the substances and, and things such as that. 
and it affects the area of the brain that that affects cause or has, uh, that, that we use when we are developing cause and effect. And yep. early life trauma can do the same. And plus, honestly, trauma often makes our children developmentally younger than their chronological years. So that also impacts understanding. Again, we don't expect understanding of cause and effect of a two-year-old, but further we do of an older child. So I'm so glad you raised that because it is, it's uh, so much of of life is based on, and behavior, and getting along in the world is based on understanding cause and effect. Mm, absolutely. And, and certainly in my five adopted children, you can really see that happen because my youngest child was removed at birth and uh, she has as many issues as my older children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and not knowing the details, but that's even prenatal trauma or prenatal exposure. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's such an important thing. And, you know, the thing about a natural consequence, and you, you talk about this, It what we're really doing is helping the child recognize that they can impact the world. And that, and that, and, and that is just fundamental to to all humans, we, especially as we age, we want to know that we make a difference or we can make a difference. So what a powerful thing following through with the logical consequences could be. Yeah, absolutely. Because if I think about my children's early life, for example, you know, uh, one of them left in a cot, wet, hungry. If he cried, nobody came. If he wet himself, he stayed wet. So like you say, there are no concerts. It's like he made no impact on the world. And often our children don't understand the impact they make on the world. So we're actually empowering them by allowing them to experience these consequences. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I speak from knowledge on this one. It is tempting when our kids do something that is either pushes our buttons or annoys the ever-loving out of us. It's so tempting that to... To to allow the natural uh, the the allowing the natural consequence to happen is not quite enough. So we want to add an extra dig in there. We want to do as your as your uh, husband had wanted to do about saying, well, if you can't ride in the car, by golly, you're not going to go to the party because that makes us feel a little better. But it's so important to combine not even with nurturance, and and part of that means. Not being gleeful, mm. even in, well, it's probably okay to have a little glee inside. <laughs> we are human after all. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Uh, let's talk some about the importance of combining natural consequences with nurturance and, and kindness and sympathy yeah. and empathy and all that. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I can see when a parent is in compassion fatigue or is really struggling, that's when the nurture goes. So that's when I will yep. see parents say things like, um, well, he uh, he lost his phone, so he hasn't got a phone now. And I told him it was his own fault. And, and they're literally like, ha, ha, ha. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, so where, where was the nurture? Where was the nurture? Remember, therapeutic parenting uses natural consequences with nurture. So I would be saying, oh, it's a, it's a real shame that your phone is broken. You know, let, let's sit down and work out a way that I can help you to, you know, save up for a new phone or or let's look at what the secondhand ones that you can get in the future. Uh, let, I'll give you a nice, nice hot chocolate, a drink. You know, so there's got to be that nurture, that empathy with the child, because otherwise what happens is the child just becomes more oppositional to us. We become the enemy 
And we have, they know if we're doing it, as you say, in a gleeful way, they know, and then we're the enemy and we're mm-hmm. going to get very stuck in that. So it won't help any of us. You know, one of the the issues that comes up with using natural or life or logical consequences is that sometimes there isn't a consequence that is either timely or it just, it's just, it, there isn't a, I used to, one of the things that, that would, it was frustrating for me as a parent was the lying. The natural consequence of lying is that you lose somebody's trust. Mm. Well, that's not a very concrete consequence, and particularly for a child who is struggling with cause and effect and, and struggling with, and needs something more concrete. And there are other examples of that where, the logical consequence is far off in the future, or the logical consequence is too dangerous, or mm. or whatever. What do you do as a parent then when you can't think of the, or you can't allow the logical consequence to follow through? Well, there's a couple of things. So, for example, with lying, we know that children often don't know the difference between truth and lies, and they really struggle with that. So that's something I wouldn't bother using consequences or natural consequences with because I don't know if the child knows what they're saying is true or not so that's quite important if I can't think of something in the moment I always say something like um well you know it's very sad that this has happened I wouldn't say that you did this it's very sad that this has happened and um I'm going to have a little think about what will happen next so that's a really good phrase to mm-hmm. use because sometimes you're so angry you can't yes, think straight. Exactly. And just buy some time, you know, because the thing's already happened. And quite often when you get away, you can think of something. With lying, you're right. The consequence is that they've lost the trust of the person and you might want to point them out to it. They likely won't care. The the main thing that I would do is I would just say to them, I know that you're saying you didn't steal the biscuit. I hear you say that. Uh, however, I see the biscuit in your hand and the crumbs around your mouth. So I've decided you did steal the biscuit. Sometimes I think your brain gets mixed up with what's true and what isn't. And that's enough. That's enough to just tell the child, you know, the mm-hmm. truth. We don't have to prove, we don't have to waste two hours of our life proving that we're right. Just tell them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Let me pause here for a minute to tell you about a free educational resource. Thanks to the Jockey Being Family Foundation, we have 12 free online courses available now for you, our listeners. When you go to bit.ly slash JBF support, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash all one word, J-B-F support, you can see all the titles such as Taking Care of Yourself When Parenting Harder to Parent Kids. Be sure to tell a friend about these free courses, too. And thank you. You have what I particularly appreciate about your books and your approach to therapeutic parenting is the practicality of it. It's clear that you have been in the trenches and have you, you because so often theoretical is good. It's good for us to know it. But in the heat of the moment, theory is the first thing that leaves our brains. And I speak from experience. So I particularly like, you have what you call the parents model, P-A-R-E-N-T-S model. And, and what I like about it, it's what you need to think about when an incident 
happens. So, okay, something has happened and all of a sudden and you're, you're feeling your cortisol levels <laughs> escalating rapidly. And so let's go through what the, obviously it's an acronym uh, and a good one. So let's go through, let's start with the P. What does the P stand for in the parent's model of how to handle an incident that uh, right in the heat of the moment? So the P is the critical pause, the pause where we have to just kind of stop for a second and think and it's the hardest thing to do yep. sometimes yep. you know but it's the difference between often getting it right and getting it wrong literally <laughs> it's like because oh, if yeah. you and that pause doesn't have to be very long it can be a sigh it can be looking out the window to focus on the fact that there is another world out there but it's just long enough for us to go okay what's happening why why is this happening to ourselves not to the child Mm -hmm. in our head what's going on here and that critical pause changes how we respond to it now obviously Mm -hmm. you know sometimes we are moving straight into action but throughout the incident normally there is places where we can take a pause and think what happened here what was before it how am I feeling is there anyone nearby I can get that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And normally when we can build that pause in, that's when afterwards we feel like, oh, yeah, I did a good job there, actually. Okay. So then the A, uh, so now we have pause. And, I, and, and I'm very glad you said you're not talking about a five-minute pause. You're talking about taking a deep breath and, and trying to get your own emotions thinking. Get your brain, your emotions quelled and your brain in action is what you're mm. really at that point trying to do. You want to be intentional with what you're doing, not emotional. Yeah. Uh, there'll be time for emotion afterwards. But all right, so we've talked about the P in the parent's model. Okay, now let's talk about the A. So the A is assess because what we're doing as we come into a situation, we are already assessing what's going on. Now, if I've got a child standing on a fourth story window cell with the window open, there's not going to be any pausing going on, really. I, I'm going to walk in the room, see what's happening, and I'm going to take immediate action. So that is, so I do a little mini assess, which is basically, is anyone in danger? It, it, it can can I exit if the child's violent? Can the child exit if they need to get out? Just a little assessment like that. Like, you know, is is the dog here? Is is the dog at risk? So I would just be looking around who's here, who's around, is there any risk to anyone before we then move on? Because I think it's really important that we do it. And again, that would take seconds to do mm-hmm. to just have a look around you and check where mm-hmm. are your other children, for example, where are they? Can you have can you move forwards and deal with this incident or is your other child about to walk out the front door onto the highway? Well, that's going to take priority. Mm -hmm. Okay. then the R is for reflection. And that's where I think we're trying to identify what happened, what triggered this. What do you mean by reflection? Yeah, so it's like a little mini reflex. Obviously, you tend to big reflect afterwards, but it's literally like, you know, hang on, where has this come from? Uh, is there anything I can think of that's caused this? What? Why is this child behaving in this way? Is there, Are there any obvious triggers? Is there something that, you know, uh, that I've missed here? So, yeah, so I would, I would look at that immediately as a, um, d- just a kind of a like, how do we get here? We were okay a minute ago. Something's happened between now and then. What might that thing be that's happened? So it, it changes my brain from 
what the child has done into why might this be happening mm-hmm. by doing that mini reflect. It's, and that is so brilliant because you were shifting, we're going back to the first thing we started with is that we have to understand the cause of our children's behavior and factoring in a moment. And again, this is a quick mini reflection. Yeah. Factoring in a moment to try to think through and say, you know, it's right before dinner or they've just come off of the bus. I wonder if something happened there or just something. And that leads us into the E, which is empathize rather than ask questions. And that one really struck me because my temptation is to always start asking questions. So let's talk about what you mean about empathize rather than ask questions. So I might, I would literally, I look at it as as if I become the mirror. So I look at the child and I say to them what I see. So I might say something like, oh, I can see you. You look really sad. I wouldn't say I can see you are really sad. I say, I I can see you look really sad or, oh, I can see that you're really struggling with this or, oh, dear, things are tricky, aren't they, at the moment? Just literally saying what I see and saying what I think the child may be experiencing, that enables the child to really, it can be very, very dramatic. You you almost almost always see a quick de-escalation because the child is thinking, oh, my behavior has communicated that someone is getting what I'm trying to say, especially with very young or or pre-verbal children or children can't express themselves. So that quick bit of empathy there, but oh dear, you know, I can see you're really struggling with this. Oh, poor you. Or oh no, let me help you. That kind of thing. It's just a much stronger way to form that connection in the moment and to show the child what it is that you're seeing. And you talk about respond to their feelings rather than the behavior. Give us an example of what uh, of language you would use. Let's say the child is tantruming and has, has knocked lamps over and is getting ready to do other, you know, is picking up something else that they're going to throw. Give us some language. Now, at this point, we're trying to focus on their feelings, respond to their feelings rather than their behavior. How might we handle that? Yeah, so if I've got a child that's tantruming, I would be saying that kind of thing to them, like, um, oh, dear, you know, you, you're, you've got a really sad face. Oh, dear, goodness me, you are angry. Uh, wow, that's some big feelings you've got there. So I'm, I'm going to reflect back exactly what it is that I see. If a child's screaming, I might need to raise my voice so they can hear me, but I'm not going to do it in an angry way. So, wow, that's a big shouty voice you've got there. Goodness me, I can see that things are really difficult for you at the moment. So that kind of empathic commentary, I wouldn't be saying at this point, if you've got a tantruming child, I wonder if this is happening because you didn't want to go to school or whatever, because that part of the brain is offline. We've got to get the child down and regulated. And we're only going to do that by reflecting back what it is we're seeing and what we think the child is feeling. So, so for example, my niece recently, she was trying to come in through a gate and she couldn't open the gate. And her mother said, no, leave her. She's got to learn, which I didn't agree with. I didn't want to undermine her. And I could see the child's getting more distressed. And, and the mother said, no, she, she, she needs to ask nicely. So I said, OK, would you like me to show you how I can get her to ask nicely? And she said, all right. So I went over to the child and I said, and she was very angry, very angry and punching the gate. And I said to her, oh, goodness me, Daisy, you, you look very sad. No, oh, you, you look like you're really struggling here. Do you need some help? She straight away stopped crying and said, yeah. 
And I said, what is it you need help with? And she said, open the gate, please. So mum was happy because the child had managed. I wouldn't have done that with my child. Mum was happy because child managed to say what she wanted her to say. I opened the gate. She came through and she was calm. I think that if we'd have gone the other way, and that was just a really, really quick bit. I didn't need to do everything else, but just that bit of, I can see you're struggling because you can't open the gate. But I think that otherwise there would have been a reaction of, stop crying right now. You're not going to, we're not going to let you in if you don't stop crying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're just going to be there for two hours. Yeah, don't hit the gate. Stop hitting the gate. Turn the handle or I've shown you a million times or any of those things are clearly not helpful. So we've gone through, we're working on the parents model. We've gone through pause, assess, reflection, emphasize rather than ask questions. And the N is for nurture. All right. Yeah. So nurture we're keeping in mind this is at the heat of this is at the heat of the moment. Let's give some examples of nurturance that we can use at the heat of the moment. Not, I mean, it's you know when everything is calm and you're talking with the child afterwards, it's easy to nurture then, or usually is. At the heat of the moment, not so much. So let's talk some about that. So this could be something you know like an offer of a warm drink. You know, so I might say something like. Oh, Dean, I can see you're really upset and la, 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 I think I'm going to make you a nice warm drink. Now, that also allows you to exit if you need to exit. Say the child is, is perhaps a little bit dangerous and you might need to uh, give a little bit of space. But it could be something as simple as just touching the child lightly on their shoulder, just like stroking their arm a little bit if they allow you to touch them. You know, nurture can be done through touch, through a sympathetic or empathic face through just being there, just sitting down next to the child and being physically present and saying, it's okay, I'm just going to stay here. I'm here. I'm just going to be here for you. That's actually a very nurturing thing to do, to just be present with the child. Mm-hmm. To say, I'm not leaving. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, not leaving. Yeah, I'm not afraid of, you have big emotions right now, but I'm not, I'm not afraid, so you don't need to be afraid, right? Yeah, yeah. All right, then T, we we knew we'd have to come to the thinking part. So the yeah. T is for thinking, uh, thinking about the next action to take. Again, speaking in the heat of the moment, what are what, what type of uh, what do you think? What are you thinking about at that point? So this might happen during the incident, even. So if if we, I mean, I've certainly had been in incidents with children where it's taken a long time. The calming down has taken a long time. So I might be sitting next to them and stroking their back and helping them to calm. Well, while they're calming, I might be thinking then, or it might happen afterwards. You know, when when the child's gone and gone on with their day. So what I'm doing here is I'm thinking about. I'm going back over it and I'm thinking you know, why did that happen? Well, I think I've identified a trigger. Was that right? Is there something I can do? Is there something I can change to remove that trigger for the future? Is there actually some kind of logical consequence that needs to be put in? Is this this all resolved and I'm happy that it's okay? Or is something, you know, further need to happen that I need to revisit with the child? Mm -hmm. Or are we able to draw a line under it? And I might want to take a bit of time to think about that. I definitely don't want to be making that decision if I'm angry or upset or emotional. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. going to buy myself a little bit of time. So, yeah, so I want to think about the strategies that I've used and if they worked and what worked and what didn't work. And if there's anything else that I could do to perhaps move this on, I might need to have a conversation with the child. I might need to assure them that I still love them and it's all okay. 
Mm-hmm. And, and it may be that there is no action that needs to be taken. That I like how you said that, draw a line under it. Yes, I mean, it's possible that it is not everything needs a uh, needs to have to be handled into the future. And, mm-hmm. and involving the child, uh, not at this, not at the heat of the moment, but later, helping them understand, it sounds to me that uh, I'm wondering if you're not... Uh, struggling at school and therefore wanting to avoid going to school and is that yeah. part of this so and and or you know whatever how can how could we how can we set up our life so that this trigger doesn't happen obviously school is not one of them but there are sometimes we can set things up about i'm wondering if you're hungry uh that when i notice that when you haven't eaten that you really have a hard time so maybe we need to have fruit sitting out on the counter and just know that you can get it any time or that type of thing talking with the child yeah yeah and 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 naming naming the need you know so so that's a lot about saying oh i see i see why you did this i see what happened and that often comes later yeah. in our thinking time yeah. and we say back to the child we're explaining to them why we think they did what they did. Right. And and the last of the parents' model, it's plural, the last is self-care. And I think yeah. that is so important because it, after an incident, especially a big one, I mean, we have incidents throughout the day, but a big one, we're drained and we're emotionally fragile at that point. So recognizing that we are not superhuman, even though we might want to think we are, that we have to take care. And, and I think of them sometimes with self-care as mini breaks. I think we think of self-care as a pedicure or a, a, a massage. And that's a massage. Well, not that I, I love massage, but, I, but if that's our idea of self-care, it doesn't mean we can do it on a regular basis. So, mm. yeah. So what do you say from the self-care standpoint? So I now talk about self-care as essential maintenance, because when people used to talk to me about self-care when my children were growing up, I would literally roll my eyes. Yes, I know. know. I I, I don't have time for bath bombs. I couldn't even turn the taps on the bath before the children were banging on the door. So I felt this was unobtainable. Mm -hmm. But what I realized was that if I didn't do essential maintenance, which was making sure I had a little bit of space away from the children so that I could free my brain to think about what was going on, everything would actually come crashing down. So those self-care bits, those essential maintenance bits, it can be as simple as going out in the garden with a cup of tea. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be a spa break, although, of course, a spa break is lovely. Mm -hmm. But it is about making sure you've got that time, making sure that when you make arrangements to see friends, that you go, Mm -hmm. making sure that you have babysitters. And do you know what? Your babysitters will not do it exactly like you do. (laughs) They won't. Mm -hmm. And you accept that because your break is more important because you Mm -hmm. can come back refreshed. Yes. And many, many self-care, many breaks, uh, making certain that a friend of mine would, she had to have two hours at the end of the day. So she was in, put the kids to bed earlier. That was just huge for her. She would pop popcorn. She would curl up. And with a uh, uh, with a movie, and and if she didn't do that daily, that was her recharge, and she needed to do it. Guys, I want to tell you about one of our partners. In fact, one of our longest standing partners, and that's Children's Connection. They are an adoption agency providing services for domestic infant adoption and embryo donation and adoption throughout the U.S., as well as they do home studies and post-adoption support to families in Texas. Thank you, Children's Connection.
Now I want to talk about some other parenting strategies for uh, tools in our toolkit, so to speak, for our harder to parent kids. The first is identify your triggers. And boy, that's and it's often hard to know our triggers because it seems like our triggers are are logical. They should be. Dadgum and everybody would be triggered by this kid doing that. So how can we identify our triggers? So I write a lot about this in the survival guide. And it is literally about, first of all, you notice it. Because what we are quite bad at, really, is squashing triggers down. So, for example, say your trigger is lying. Um, and yes, a child it was. Lies <laughs> yes, it was. Thank you. <laughs> and the child's lying to you. What happens is we tend to not notice that's triggered us. We are we just feel enraged and we're not noticing. So that's part of our reflection. Artists will go, I wonder why. You know, when when I knew it was like, how did I feel? How did I mm-hmm. react? Well, I reacted very strongly. I wonder what it is about the lying mm-hmm. that triggers me. What does lying mean to me? And then I just kind of play it back and play it back. And what? why is that important in my life? Was there a time in my life when, you know, lying had a very big impact on me? Was it that my parents were very, very strong on telling the truth and there was consequences if you didn't? You, got, you, you can identify that mm-hmm. yourself, actually. But the first step is actually noting, like noticing mm-hmm. you are mm-hmm. triggered because mm-hmm. that's, that's really that's a real skill, I think. Mm-hmm. We, we tend to just keep going, just mm-hmm. keep going with it and not cycle back. So that's part of our reflection. Absolutely. And, and and we tend to think of our triggers as, well, of course I'm triggered because they did this. I mean, it's as opposed to realizing that our emotions were bigger than the event. It uh, mm-hmm. takes self-respect uh, reflection. All right. Another thing, uh, another one of your tools is to set realistic expectations. And that sounds obvious, but with our kids who have experienced trauma or have experienced prenatal exposure, the setting, having our real, having our expectations be realistic is crucial, isn't it? Yes, it is. Because you see, the problem is our children are built for survival. They, they're very good at looking like they're managing sometimes. They're very good at smiling and saying everything's okay. And, you know, it's very difficult when you've got a child who is chronologically eight, where you have people around you saying, he should be able to, mm-hmm. he should be able to do this. Well, you know, if you've missed the first three years of life, getting all those foundation stones in place, you're going to be stuck. It's not just that you're three years behind. Because physically, you might be eight, and emotionally, you might be two. Mm -hmm. And then what we see is people around us looking at our eight-year-old behaving emotionally at two Mm -hmm. and saying they shouldn't be doing it, and it gets very, very difficult for us. But if we understand, and the way we do that, you ask yourself one little question. When you see the behavior and you watch what your child's doing, you ask yourself, at what age would I expect to see a child behaving like that? And when you do that, you get the emotional age your child is at right now. So and then you respond to them at that age, not at the fact, you know, you don't get them to say, well, why are you still crying for a drink? You know, it's 10 o'clock at night and you're eight years old. You should learn to go to sleep. What I'm thinking is this is an 18 month old. They can't settle. What would you have done with an 18 month old? You would have soothed them. You'd have rocked them. You'd have given them a drink of milk. Let's respond to that emotional age. Because an unmet need remains unmet until it's met. 
And we have to go back and we have to meet those unmet needs. So to help our children move on to the next stage. Okay. Another tool you have is to use silliness or playfulness. Give us an example of what you mean by that. So, for example, one day I was sitting in the house with my youngest daughter. She was the only one left at home. All the others had moved out one by one, which was lovely. And <laughs> the, ne- the next one up came for a visit. So as she rang the doorbell, or I think she heard her key in a lot, my youngest, Charlie, was like straight away she started going up. Straight away she was triggered and I could see. So at that point, my playfulness brain comes and I need to do something now to regulate her. So I jumped up put on some really happy music. I said, oh, I haven't done my exercises today. Come do my exercise with me, Charlie. And I started doing the, the, you know, these dancing about. And she laughed, jumped up and started dancing with me. So that lowers her cortisol levels. And we know that children can't feel fear and uh, joy simultaneously. So she's feeling joy. The fear, which is fueling her anger about her sister coming in and taking her space, that's gone away. So uh, so it's got to be in the moment and it's got to be pretty quick. But, you know, I used to have quite a lot of laughs with it myself, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, now I'm afraid I'm the one who embarrasses my children <laughs> and they're the ones that tell me to stop. <laughs> oh, that is the joy of parenting older kids. I'm right there with you. Yeah. <laughs> Another tool is remove the audience. Mm. What do you mean by that? So sometimes our children, you know, because they're testing us out and they want to see if we're safe, they will do things to elicit a response from us. And it's part of being that steam train and moving on. So one of the ways I did that, say, for example, I'm getting ready to go to school. We've got a video on this, actually, on on YouTube. So we're getting ready to go to school. We're just about to walk out the door. The child's got put their slippers on. They they haven't got their shoes and they're they're just being silly and I'm not going. So I know the more I interact with that, the worse it's going to get. I know that. So what I do is I do the opposite and I go, oh, great. Okay, well, we'll just wait here while I wait for you to put this on. I've just got to make a quick phone call, actually. So I'm removing my attention from what's going on and I'm making a call, a pretend call, obviously, to somebody who doesn't exist and the phone is on silence, so it's not going to ring. And I say, oh, hello, you know, yes, we would normally be going to school, but so-and-so has decided to wear her slippers today. That's funny, isn't it? Anyway, I'll put the kettle on. And now, obviously, your brain is thinking, I've got to get to, I've got to get them to school. I need to. But actually, the more we indulge ourselves in that behavior, the worse it's going to get. Well, the child wants my attention back. So they've gone off. They've put their shoes on. Oh, mum, come on, ready. Come on, let's go. We need to go to school. They want me off the phone. So I'm able to keep up my empathic commentary on the phone call. I can talk about the child and say, oh, dear, you know, uh, I think I wonder if she's worried about going to school. I can stay present, but my attention looks like it's elsewhere. So that that really helps. Or going into the kitchen and and starting on dinner or uh, going and drawing a bath for yourself or something that uh, uh, our attention is often fuel. And uh, some things, if we remove the fuel, the fire dies out naturally. Absolutely. Here's another tool. Help kids show they are sorry rather than demand they say they are sorry. That's a, that's a great one. Uh, talk to us about that one. Yeah, so our children, you know, they do usually want to put things right. You know, they, they, they do feel this kind of disconnect, but they don't know how to put things right. And we, we can often get into a battle where we're demanding that the children say sorry. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> and then they say you're sorry. They say they're sorry. And they say it like, sorry. Um, and you go, yeah. no, okay, you've got to say it like you mean it. And then you think, who is the adult in this room? 
yeah. clearly not me. <laughs> yeah, and it's a really easy trap to get into. Oh, so, yeah. like, like lying, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to paint ourselves into a corner with that. So, I'm not going to ask my children to say sorry. I'm going to say, um, so, for example, uh, my son playing in a soft play place with another child, because that's always what parents really struggle with is what other people think. You know, yeah, yeah. he's bashed another kid. And the mother is going, oh, he needs to apologize. So what I do is I take my son over. He's with me. And I say to the little boy, I'm really sorry that William hurt you. If he could say sorry to you, he would say this. This is what he would say. So maybe now, William, and I would say the apology. Um, and now maybe, William, what we could do, we'll go and buy this little boy a little, uh, a little snack and give him that to show. So, so we would go and, and he would come with me. So I'm keeping him close to me. So as we go and buy that, and then he gives the child. So he's showing the child that he's sorry, and the child is feeling better, and the mum's feeling better. But I'm not saying, going, you will stand there until you give mm-hmm. me a meaningless apology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's a fool's errand. All right, you'd mentioned the phone strategy above, but that's another tool, and you mentioned it as, as a way of diverting attention. But there are other ways we can use our handy phones, which are always with us anyway. Yeah. One I particularly liked was being able to pay a compliment, but it, it meant more to especially one of my children if it was not directed to them, but if they heard me on the phone to my mother or uh, my husband or whatever saying, oh, you know, so-and-so did the, the kindest thing today. I was so impressed. And, uh, and and I will admit that every once in a while it was done without anybody on the other end of the phone. Yeah. But yeah. the... Uh, yeah. So any other ways that we can use our appendage called the phone to uh, help us in parenting these kids? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, for example, I've done I used to take photos in the moment of the child when they were doing certain facial expressions because my children didn't know how to smile. And I would do so. And I'd say, that's what that's what you're smiling like. You know, what do you think about that? So they could see it right now while they were doing it. And I said, do you think this looks happy or sad? I'm not going to share it with other people. But and then we might use the mirror. The other thing that I would do was um, check my emails. So I've, I'm walking home from school. Child decides they're going to hold on to the lamppost. And they're not going to move. I'm going to. And I'm, oh, brilliant. You, can you stay on that lamppost? That's that's great. I haven't checked my emails today. I'm just going to check my emails. And I, I just li- literally, I'm looking at my phone and just looking at it. <laughs> and of course, the child's holding on the lamppost now. They don't really want to hold on to the lamppost anymore. There's no point to hold on to the lamppost. And I'm like, no, no, stay, stay, stay on the lamppost. I know where you are. Uh, yeah, no, I'm going now, Mum. We're not, we're not going to do it. So, yeah, quite handy. I love your concept of uh, payback time. Explain that. I used it and I love it. Yeah, so this is like, so if if I've had to do something which has taken me a lot of time, then the child owes me that time back. So because sometimes that's in that's really useful for these situations where you can't think of anything. Yes, that's so how I used it. Exactly. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, it's nothing obvious. There's no obvious natural consequence here. So for example, you know, I had this rule one of my boundaries certainly as the children got older was that I would do all their washing I would take it downstairs and then they would need to put it away we got to a point where they could more or less do that I know it was it was very uh, it took a long time but anyway so I took the washing down put it on their bed instead of putting it away one of them would always kind of hide it or crumple it all up and put it back in the washing basket so that would take me time to sort it out 
So I would rather than say, well, you're going to have to go about in dirty clothes or creased up clothes, which is not therapeutic and there's no nurture there. I would say, oh, you know, I was a bit sad earlier. I noticed that, you know, the clothes were all screwed up and put back in the laundry basket. And it actually took me half an hour to sort that out. So now I don't have time to drive you to so-and-so because that half an hour, I, I need to use that for something else. So I'm sorry, I can't take you there. So you need to help me with this so we can get it done quicker. So I might say, so you can help me with the washing up. That's going to pay back some of the time. And then we're going to get ahead of ourselves. So mm-hmm. I would help get the child to help me to make up the time that I'd lost. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And I would also, you could also extend that to energy. I've spent so much energy. I am now too tired to vacuum yeah. the living room, even though I had planned on vacuuming the living room. But now I don't have time to vacuum the living room. And I don't have the energy because I've, yeah. I'm tired now from having done all this. Thank you so much for being able to do that yeah. for me. Yeah. All right. And the last, you have lots of, of tools mm-hmm. in your books. But the last one I have time to talk about is, and and I want to because I think it is so important, is admitting it when we make a mistake. And uh, it comes naturally for some adults and, or in some parents, and it comes really hard for some parents. Uh, why is it so important that we do it? I think it's about saying to the child, you know, we're, we're human. People make mistakes. I think that the error we sometimes can make, we can overdo it. So I get a lot of parents that will contact me and say, oh, I I made a mistake and I did this and I'm so sorry and I don't know what to do and I'm such a terrible parent. So I always say to them, well, hang on a minute, let's get a bit of perspective because (laughs) do you know what, you know, the amount of times I say to my children, yeah, I'm sorry I had a bad day yesterday and I was a bit short-tempered, they would say, will you, did you? It's often worse in our minds uh-huh. than it yeah. is for the children. So it's still important to acknowledge that and say, you know, I had a bad day. So I was being tired and grumpy. Um, my daughter once said to me, oh, was that a bad day? She said, oh, well, a bad day with you is like a day in Disneyland compared to a good day with my birth parents. Huh. Well, don't, I'm just going to say for the rest of the parents out there, don't expect to hear that. <laughs> no. It it's wonderful if you would hear it, but you probably won't. <laughs> It was some years. Yes. It was some years on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today about therapeutic parenting. And uh, I truly appreciate it. Will you also share with us about the new book now? You have two books. The first yeah. is The A to Z of Therapeutic Parenting, but you have a new book that just came out, The A to Z yeah. of Survival Strategies for Therapeutic Parents. So what prompted you, and, and tell us uh, about the new book, what prompted you to write an, an addendum, a, a sequel? Well, it's interesting. It's because, you know, the, the A to Z in England, the first one, has been like the, the best-selling book in adoption fostering in the UK for four years now. And I started thinking, you know, that's great for the children, for helping someone about the children. And then I started thinking, you know, it can be so isolating sometimes. We we do have these bad days. Our Facebook pages are full of parents saying, I'm a terrible person. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know if I can do yeah. this anymore. This is really difficult. And I just thought, I'm going to talk to that. I'm going to talk to the fact that we sometimes have days when we get up in the morning and we, we, we really mm-hmm. don't want to carry on. It's yeah. uh, But also, I wanted to make people laugh because, do you know what? Our lives are ridiculous. We we do things. We get into situations that nobody could possibly imagine. And so I've there's a lot. There is swearing in it. 
there are some very funny stories in it but it's yes, actually it it's all about us it's mm-hmm. all about how we carry on and how we do that and there's not a bath bomb in sight it's all about practicalities those anxieties very. those feelings of you know when when people are criticizing you perfect parents extended family what do you say yes. how do you say it all of that it's very practical and i loved the the actual like say this say that you know it's that's i am immensely on the practical end of things and i so mm. appreciated the the practicality of it so thank you for writing it thank you, thank you sarah nash for being with us today this has been great i truly appreciate it <laughs>